the gospel generates new relationships based upon the story of the Philippian jailer. In Acts chapter 16, verse 34, the scripture says, Then he, the jailer, the warden, brought them up into his house, and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. I think what this story is telling us is that the, uh, the background to this verse is that famous scene where Paul and Silas are chained in prison for nothing more than preaching. And they're singing at midnight, and God sends an earthquake that opens all the prison doors. This happens in Philippi. So how did Paul and Silas get from Asia Minor, Turkey, into Greece, into Macedonia? Well, Philippi is a city in Macedonia in northeastern Greece. See, Paul was headed north in the town of Troas, according to chapter 16, verse 8, when he received a vision of a man who says, Come, give us the gospel. And so Paul immediately went and gave the gospel. And while Paul was there, there was a demon-possessed girl that was getting on Paul's last nerve. So Paul exercised the demon out of the servant girl, out of the servant girl. And without this demon, she was now useless to her owner's profit margin. And so these men trumped up charges that prompt the magistrate to beat and imprison the missionaries. What happens in this story in front of us in Acts 16 is that the regular power dynamics are being turned upside down. The servant girl was being exploited for profit. The magistrates are controlled by the businessmen who have the political powers in their back pocket. The warden is fearful of his very own life when the magistrate learns of this escape of the prisoners. But by the end of Act 16, the prisoners are now house guests of the warden. The warden's family and his servants are becoming allegiant to Christ as their new master. The power dynamics are totally upended by new relationships. The warden is now a nursemaid, in verse 33. The magistrates are now fearful of the prisoners, in the second part of verse 38, going on into verse 39. He says, the, the magistrates now say to the prisoners, the best thing you can do for both of us is leave town. And so rather than having all of the power oppressing the Christians, now... The Christian gospel is spreading. And others are buying into the kingdom. And the authority of Christ is shown superior to the authority of the magistrates. As I think about new relationships that turn power structures upside down, I began to ask myself this week, why do musicians and actors and athletes and businessmen make so much more money and receive so much more respect 
than our teachers, our first responders, our soldiers. Who is it that is most influential within our society according to their earnings? I wonder why do the ideas of the wealthy seem to have more credibility than the person who's in the laboratory doing the science? I have learned in my life that a person who snakes drains for a living may not be featured in the news. But when I need that service, I appreciate what Mike Rowe is doing to give more dignity to those who do the dirty jobs. The gospel levels the ground so that there are no longer the rich and the powerful and the meaningless, but it becomes level ground where everybody has power. In God's kingdom, the first becomes last. The last becomes first. In God's kingdom, those with little respect are made prominent. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, the plumber who snakes drains, we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with a greater modesty. We cover up things that need to be covered up. We elevate things that were otherwise despised. What this tells me is that shortly after the gospel came into Greece, the power dynamics are reversed in Philippi because of new relationships. In Thessalonica, the power switch was not about um, it was not about power, but it was about a new allegiance. Because in Acts chapter 17, the gospel not only forms new relationships, but the gospel obligates a new reign. Look with me at verse 7 of chapter 17. And Jason, one of the Christians, had received them, the missionaries. And the accusation is, Jason's family, they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The accusation was, when the gospel came to these people, these people started obeying another king instead of our king. These people began to submit to the reign of a different king, King Jesus. And indeed, the gospel does require a new reign. Those who were enslaved by the current system are threatened by the liberty that the gospel delivers. Allegiance to Jesus in no way was going to harm the Jews. Other than the Jewish leaders were addicted to intimidation and power. And because they were addicted to power, the fact that these Christians would not submit to them intimidates them so that they become jealous and angry. Their addiction to intimidation and power drives jealousy, creates an uproar, and launched attacks against the Christians in chapter 17, verse 5. And one of the local people who had begun to follow Jesus was a man by the name of Jason. Jason's household had experienced the liberty that comes from the gospel. When our sins are forgiven, 
we have a new liberty and a new freedom not to follow all the rules of a dead religion. Rather than blind obedience to the Jewish yoke of intimidation, now Jason's family threw off the yoke of slavery as they submitted to the reign of King Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verse 21 clearly describes the liberty that becomes ours when we understand the gospel message. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. Because the grace that reigns through righteousness leads to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When I think of being redeemed from an old master, I think of the word emancipation. Originally, in the Roman law, emancipation was a legal act by which the head of a family released a child from parental control. And in the Latin language, releasing the child from parental control was the phrase e manu capio e manu capio emancipate and it simply means to let go of the hand a parent who used to hold the hand of a child to keep him or her from running amok in the act of emancipation the child or the father lets go of the hand of the child so that the child can then act with independence. And the same thing happens when the gospel of Jesus Christ emancipates us from the law of sin and death. The sin that had us bound, the sin that restrained us, sin is forced to let go of the hand so that now we are free to serve the Lord God and his authority over us, which leads to eternal life. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just a benefits letter that we put into a safe deposit box for some future redemption. Some of you have life insurance policies that do no good for you right now. However, there is a document of that policy sitting in a safe place so that upon your death, your beneficiaries can claim the benefits of that policy. And some people view the gospel of Jesus Christ in the same way. Someday when I die, I'll be able to present the document of salvation so that I'm allowed into heaven. And to them, the gospel and salvation in Christianity is nothing more than a hell insurance policy claimed upon death. But the power of the gospel is not a benefits letter. It is a full surrender to a new ruler. That Jesus now has a new reign over us. That Jesus is now our new master. It's not just a benefits letter. It's a new master that says, Jesus is the one whom I follow in this life. See, the gospel gives a new dignity in this life, as it did with the Philippian jailer. The gospel gives new liberty in this life as we are now free to follow Christ. And this new liberty and this new dignity happen because the gospel pivots on resurrection. Look at verses 31 and 32 of Acts chapter 17. 
where we read that because he, God, has fixed a day on which he, God, will judge the world in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he has appointed. And of this, God has given assurance to all by raising Jesus from the dead. And now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. The message of the resurrection divided the crowd into two groups. The background to this verse is actually given in Psalms uh, or in Acts 17:16. And and in Acts 17:16, it, it, it's driven by Paul's understanding of the exclusivity that Jesus claimed. See, Jesus claimed in John chapter 14, verse 6, that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, and no one will come to the Father except through him. And in Acts chapter 17, Paul finds himself in Athens, and people were saying, well, this is my belief system. This is my religious structure. This is the God that I choose to worship. And, God, and, and Paul sees all these different people serving all these different gods with all these different religious systems. And Paul says, now wait a sec. Jesus said that he is distinct from all others because Jesus said he is the way. And the fact that Jesus is the way was proven by his resurrection from the dead. There's not another one of these Stoics or these Epicureans or any of the other philosophers who can claim that their leader was crucified and resurrected. See, the Epicureans and the Stoics were the early proponents of a personal truth. Have you heard that phrase? Well, that's my personal truth. But they were honest enough to admit that contrary claims cannot be equally valid. If they had their truth and you have your truth and our truths are not the same, one of them has to be wrong. And so they were tolerant of those who disagreed with them. You're enabled to your opinion, but your opinion is not going to bring about a right conclusion. And so they all had their own personal truth, and they said, mine is good for me, yours is good for you, but um, one of us has to be wrong. Our culture likes to claim that my beliefs may differ from your beliefs. But my right to my beliefs ought to be no threat to your beliefs. However, in practice, if my beliefs cast shade on your beliefs, your tolerance disappears, and I become labeled as a bigot. Paul was unashamed to wear the bigot label. He says the resurrection sets my belief system against all the others. They can't all be equally true. The philosophers of Athens admitted that their beliefs were different, and they understood that differences of belief could not coexist. If one were true, by reason, the others had to be untrue. 
And within this environment, Paul makes a claim that sets Christianity apart from all other deities. He said, Jesus was raised from the dead. And some were willing to admit that made Christianity unique, and they joined Paul. Others refused to admit that that made Christianity unique, and they continued to mock the Christian truth. But to those who believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, they received full assurance of the truthfulness of the gospel. If you say, these are your ideas, and these are your beliefs, and this is what you hold to, but I can say, I've got proof that mine is better than all of the others. My proof is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which sets my belief system apart from all others. You know, we've been told today that we are tolerant. But if you refuse to make cake for my celebration, then you will no longer be permitted to make cakes for any occasion. If you refuse to rent space for my event, you will not be permitted to exist as a venue for any event. Because my right to my event and your obligation to participate in my event trumps any other belief system. And in this idea of tolerance, where mine is more important than yours, we have to always come back to, well, what's the proof that your system is better? Because Acts 17 says the proof that our system is better than theirs is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, Buddhism ultimately seeks fulfillment within man. Hinduism sees the ultimate fulfillment outside of the human experience. Mythology sees many gods. Judaism and Jehovah's Witnesses see one God, but Jesus is somehow other than that one God. And these claims are all mutually exclusive. They cannot all be true. And if they are not all true, then newsflash, not all paths lead to God. When any other religion gains the credibility of a crucifixion and resurrection of God in the flesh, then we can have a discussion. But until then, the uniqueness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus from that tomb. Now, so far today, we've seen the power of the gospel in Greece that's generated a new dignity, it's granted a new liberty, it's introduced a new confidence, and fourthly, we see that the gospel includes new rules. Now, we don't like rules, do we? But the gospel transforms us so that we live differently from the old way of doing things. Acts chapter 18, verse 15 says, But since this is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, the king says, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be the judge of these things. What does this verse mean for us? See, the gospel includes a new way of living. Have you noticed that the, the cities in these points that I've made this morning are books of the New Testament? 
we've been to Philippi, we've been to Thessalonica, now we move to Corinth. And Paul wrote four letters to Corinth. Two of those four letters are considered inspired scriptures and included in our New Testament. Corinth in the first century was the San Francisco, the Las Vegas, the New York City of its day. And Acts chapter 18 reminds us that when the gospel comes to a people in one of these places, the people begin to live differently. They don't reflect the same values as the society around them. Corinth was a city with at least three major parties. The Jewish party, the pagan party, and the Christian party. And because all three of these parties had very different lifestyles, the Jewish party tried to get their federal senator, a man by the name of Gallio, who was the proconsul, the Jews tried to get Gallio to enforce everybody else to act like them. What happens is the senator says, I'm not going to make other people act like you. This is your opinion. These are your rules. You work it out. In other words, he kicked it to the states. Don't ask me to make a judgment. You guys work this out among yourselves. This conflict tells me that it's possible, maybe it's even necessary, for Christians to live distinct from those around them. There was something unique about the Christian lifestyle that the Jews said, they're not like us. And in the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians, we see that the pagan influence was influencing the Christians, that the Christians were acting more like the pagans than what the Word of God instructs. See, there are a myriad of issues for which we can hold very strong opinions. But can we respect those who disagree with those opinions? Can we agree to disagree and still remain friends? My primary care physician is a fan of a certain professional football team that used to beat the Chiefs consistently. And my last physical just happened to be the day after the Broncos got beat on Thursday night football. So I, of course, wore a Chiefs t-shirt into my doctor's appointment. We teased each other, we laughed together, and I left the office, neither of us having convinced the other, but we were still friends. You probably have not looked this closely at the calendar yet, but did you realize in December that Christmas Day is on a Sunday this year? On Friday night, two days ago, I shared the bench with another pastor from our community at the football game. And I asked them if their church was going to do Christmas Eve and or Christmas Day this year. And he, he told me what they were going to do and asked what we were going to do. And I simply said, well, our, our elders have not discussed that yet. But you know what? We were able to walk away from the game just as strong of friends as we've ever been. Whether we do what they do or not doesn't mean one of us is godly and the other is worldly. It simply means we're different. Sometimes, agreeing to disagree with others 
as Galileo does, it's our best choice, rather than forcing other people to be exactly like me. I guess that about forcing others to be like us, the application is this. Just because something is legal doesn't mean it's godly. You may be free to do that, but don't force me to do it. Secondly, just because someone obeys God differently than you do does not mean that he is worldly or that she is godless. We have in Acts chapter 18 a story where there were two very different lifestyles, and one tried to say, make them like us. And the leader simply says, I'm not going to dip down into that conversation. You guys work it out. And the reality is, is for us as Christ followers, the gospel should make our lives different from others but not in such a way that we force them to be like us. There is no doubt in my mind that we are more polarized than we have been in the past. And too often, we are blurring the lines between the city of man and the city of God. I simply ask us all for reflection. Do the yard signs for the candidate or the issues that are different from your ballot, do those yard signs prompt you to keep other people at a distance? Or do they prompt you to draw them closer? We may, what may be a... um, a way between now and November 8th for you to live out the gospel by generating a new relationship. If the gospel was able to reconcile a warden and a prisoner, might the gospel be able to reconcile you with someone who is currently planning to vote differently than you? How might the reign of Christ and the shape of your morality be calling you to love God by loving others? See, I'm convinced that there is a city of man, there is a city of God, and we are to pray that the will of God would be done on earth. I'm also convinced that people around us need the Lord Jesus. And that needs to be our primary emphasis. Our final song.